Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Pirated Radio. In this episode, I speak to a man of many disciplines, including painting, interior design, graphic design, you name it, he's probably dabbled in it, um, who goes by the name of Ben Cowley. And what most people know Ben for is actually designing the very famous nightclub, uh, the Hacienda. Ben has done numerous projects for numerous amazing people over the years, including bands like the Sex Pistols and Orchestral Maloo's in the Dark. He's worked with countless fashion labels, including Off-White, and he's worked with many different organisations, including the London Design Museum. And in this episode, we talk about a few different things, including sort of his career, um, his interest in all the facets of kind of the art and design world, including fashion, painting, you know, obviously interior design, things like that. Uh, we talk about his kind of process that he goes through with each individual project. Uh, we talk about clothing and fashion and sort of off-white as um, as the brand off-white takes a lot of inspiration from sort of the work from the Hacienda at times. And we talk about the backstory of how um, when Ben met Virgil, essentially. Um, and we talk about um, the Manchester City kit from a couple of seasons ago, which blatantly ripped off the Hacienda. Um, and Ben was not contacted and, and I'll let him explain. But um, yeah, we talk about a few other things, including kind of the future of the industry, future of design education, as I normally do with people. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I really enjoyed this. It may seem like um, he's sort of pissed off at me at times and I don't believe he is. <laughs> I asked him at the end. I don't know if I'll keep it in, but... Yeah, he's not, I promise. <laughs> but yeah, um, I hope you enjoy. So um, to begin with, I normally get the people who I'm speaking to to sort of give them uh, an introduction to who you are and sort of what you do. Okay, well, um, I'm Ben Kelly, um, also known as the Photo Kid. I... Um, I'm a designer, mostly interiors, but that has strayed into many, many other territories. And uh, I also operate as an artist, mostly doing big installations, but I also make paintings. I do prints and various, various other kind of projects. And I collaborate with other artists and designers. I teach. Um, yeah, that's who, and I, who I am and what I do. Um, but yeah, so sort of on the back of that, is design something that, sort of art and design, is that something that you've had an interest in from sort of an early age or is it something that kind of you got interested in from sort of a later on stage, uh, stage in your life? Well, I guess it depends on how you define an early age. But um, <clears throat> my answer to your question is it's a question I've asked myself um, many times specifically to do with my interest in the, the subject of interior design and... Um, the answer that I came up with on that one was that it, it came about from staring at a cupboard for many years, which may sound a bit bizarre, but I um, <clears throat> I grew up in a tiny little village in North Yorkshire in the Yorkshire Dales called Appletreewick, 27 houses, two pubs and a church. And we lived in um, what had been a lead miner's stone cottage. So it was pretty rural and the outside world seemed like a long, long way away. <clears throat> However, in that village, there were a few 
mildly eccentric ladies living there who my mother was friendly with and I used to go to these houses and I can remember seeing magazines, um, I guess glossy ladies' magazines like, I don't know, Vogue, Harper's, Harper's Bazaar, things like that. And maybe flicking through them, I was looking at um, glossy advertising where you might see an advert for something in an unusual interior or a glossy interior or fashion spreads or, or I don't know, adverts for holidays in glamorous places. Things that seem like from another planet to me, but held a great intrigue and that whole world of advertising interiors, architecture, and I suppose, without me realising it, but graphic design. <clears throat> so I think subliminally those magazines had an influence on me and spoke of the wider world and, and the kind of more glamorous world. <clears throat> and also one of the ladies in particular who became kind of my mentor, who was a kind of a beatnik type of a lady, but she had a big influence on me and she was interested in in – I don't know, the bar house and um, modern architecture. And as I was growing up, I guess I fell under her spell a little bit. <clears throat> but the staring at the cupboard thing um, in this tiny cottage that we lived in, there was a cupboard adjacent the, the fireplace, which was an old-fashioned what's called a Yorkshire range, a cast-iron fireplace, and a cupboard that my mother complained bitterly about that it wasn't practical and she wanted open shelves there, something like that. And I can remember thinking, well, there's a problem there to be solved, and how could that problem be solved? <clears throat> and I do think that that lay some kind of foundation for me thinking about the discipline of design and how you solve a problem through design, and specifically related to interior design. Um, and fast-forwarding to being at school, I was hopeless at exams. I mostly failed all the exams. But the art teacher was an interesting person and maybe I did moderately well in the art department. But the the big kind of magnetic draw was art school. And I, um, I remember very well a friend of mine who <clears throat> was the kind of coolest guy, although we didn't know what the hell cool was or even didn't know about that word. But he went off to art school and he came back and he said, it's, it's amazing, it's fantastic, you can – wear whatever you want. You can grow your hair long. Uh, there's plenty of girls. You know, it's it's incredible. And I thought, well, that's for me. And somehow I applied to various art schools. I applied to Bradford Art College because I'd heard of David Hockney, who had been at Bradford Art School, but I failed there because I didn't have enough ex qualifications. And then we found this course at a college in a place called Lancaster, and they did an interior design course. Now, why I wanted to go on that course, I still don't remember, but that's what I went for. And I got a provisional place on the understanding that I got some more O-levels. So I went to night school and got some more O-levels, and, um, and, and the rest is history. <laughs> um, so that whole thing about design and an interest from an early age, I think it wasn't – you know, it wasn't there on the surface, but it was there underneath the surface and it kind of it eventually came to the surface. And But also I think, you know, I I grew up, well, I grew up in, well, you know, the beginning of the 60s when when 
pop music took hold of the nation, if you like, with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, etc. I was an adolescent at the time, an earlier, a young adolescent, and that had a huge influence on me. And uh, television, you know, the the the, the the few, well, I think the only program that had groups on was Top of the Pops at the time, and just watching and seeing what what the groups looked like and what they were wearing and the whole vibe, the whole thing that was going on, you know, it it was spellbinding and it 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 really took a big hold on me. And um, you know, bands like the Who at that time kind of projected this image that was pop art. It was it was you know it. And so the whole thing of popular culture, it exploded. It exploded just at the right time for me, and I was massively under the spell of what became known as popular culture in its broadest sense, from the music to fashion to design, really. And, um, you know, I was in the in the kind of the thick of all of that, and it, it, was, it was incredible. It was massive at the time. It was incredibly exciting, and it was new. It was new, and it was... Um, another world, and I, I, I jumped in in at the deep end, really at the deep end. Yeah, so that that's what that was all about. In terms of, I think everything's kind of about perspective, isn't it? And it is sort of, it's everything you grow up with, really, and it's sort of the time you grow up with. I think nowadays, in terms of some of the influences, and we'll get onto them a bit later as well. But I think Virgil Abloh is the one that kind of people look up to like at the younger generation they look up to him as sort of the person like that's cool do you know what i mean never heard of him <laughs> um yeah so jumping forward so yeah um you mentioned that you work in a couple of different areas uh including graphic design interior well more than a couple but <laughs> a few different areas um how do you find sort of the approach you take between each one do they have similar sort of um some similar sort of strokes, so to speak, that you do with each one, or do you go into each one with a different mindset? Well, I think, you know, if you look at, the, at that from a general perspective, it is just the creative activity. So it's about creative thought and thinking. And, um, you know, whether it is, I don't know, whether it's a piece of furniture, an artwork, a uh, uh, an album cover, an interior, whatever it might be, there's a broader picture to think about. And there's a, there's there's a kind of um, a general understanding of of the creative process and and a kind of worldview on that. Uh, and I think that your the education that you've been through and the influences that have been brought to bear on you they all they all have to do with how you approach something, you know, there isn't one answer to any of it. But when, for me, you know, I think when I start, right at the very beginning when I started, I wanted to be an artist. I, I wanted to make sculpture. That's what I wanted to do. And, it, and in fact, when I started at art school, I think I really want to do that. I want to make art. I want to make sculpture. But I realised very quickly that um, it's not easy to earn a living doing that. And that I think that the, 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 the connection or the relationship between Sculpture and interior design is a very close, connected thing because it's it's three-dimensional and that three-dimensional world interested me. But, you know, you, get, you go to art school and um, you make friends from other departments and you're interested in the broader sweep of art and design. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's one big thing. 
But when you drill down into the, into the independent and individual disciplines, then then yes, there are different approaches. Quite obviously, between three dimensional design and two dimensional design, and I, I engage with the world of three dimensional design, and specifically interior design, which is what I kind of built a business around. The thing that I go straight to is the plan. Is the is the architectural plan of of whatever that interior or that building might be? It's the plan that's the driving force, and you might only understand that if you actually engage with that discipline. And then the second thing is context, and context is king to me. It's what is that interior? What is it? What, what's the building that it's in? Where is that building? Where does that building sit? What's what are the surroundings? What's what's the environment that it's within? What's the kind of sociological thing that's going on around there? What's the what's driving it politically? What's what's driving it culturally? And of course, what does the client want? Um, but and with two dimensional design, then it is different. Um, it's flat, you know. It's it's and there are. With three-dimensional design, the processes are different. You're building something physically. You know, it's it's bricks and mortar. It's 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 lumps of material. It's physical. It's very very physical. And two-dimensional design is flat and it's mostly printed. And um, the processes are completely and utterly different. And I'm interested in process. And you know, the word process it can apply to all all design disciplines, but for me, process is about the materiality. It's about how things physically go together. It's about the mechanical aspect of it. How does one thing sit on top of another or connect at the corner or how, how do you support something? But if you apply those, those kind of thoughts and processes to two-dimensional design, then you have a different approach completely. So when I when I engage with the process of, or the discipline of graphic design i kind of brought to that discipline what i what i call process it and so if i did an album cover for a band called orchestral maneuvers in the dark with peter savile which was one of the early things that i did two-dimensionally i suggested it should be a perforated sleeve which a graphic designer would never have in a thousand years have thought about or even considered but because I came from a different discipline, I applied a different thought process and and brought about a different approach to how graphic design could come into being or using different materials in relationship to graphic design. But the same kind of creative thought processes are going on. It's, it's, it's just bringing it from one discipline to another discipline. So I don't see a great deal of difference. And, and I when I was running my office, I actively encouraged the office and, and um, the kind of projects that we were looking for to be as broad as possible and not to focus on any one aspect of the discipline. So, you know, we ended up doing exhibition designs, um, both uh, commercial and, and um, residential, uh, the, the the whole the the full gamut of what you could do, and I, I kept it as broad as possible, in order that we didn't get bogged down in one particular discipline and end up just cranking out another version of the same thing, and that you don't bring 
baggage to the next project. It's new, it's something fresh, and you have to think again. You have to start again to think about how you might approach that. You have kind of answered there the, the next question. So I don't know if you want to carry on with it a little bit more at all, but yeah, the next question was kind of when you approach a project and you mentioned processes, do you have kind of a tick list that you go through or is it is it kind of, so yeah, each project is kind of different? I don't have any sort of bloody lists, thank you very much. Lists drive me mad, but yes, they're necessarily evil. Um, well, you know, the client... <laughs> The client's driving a project, the client has a brief, and you have to work to that brief, um, if that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Um, I mean, I've tried to do some self-generated projects, so I'm my own client in that respect. But, you know, with with, with let's, exhibition design, you need graphic design within exhibition design because all the exhibits need captioning and you need and, – and, and, um, so either you work with graphic designers and there's a kind of collaboration going on there or you or you do it yourself. So, and I, I, I love the idea of collaboration and, and working with other creative people from other disciplines and that out of that something, something new and something fresh comes, hopefully. And I encourage that process of collaboration and have done all my working life and do the same with students because I think it's a richer it's a richer process and, and hopefully the end product is, is a richer thing. Not always the case. Of course it isn't. Um, so it depends, it, it, you know, it depends what the project is, who the client is, what the budget is, what's the context of it, where is it, you know, what's the program. And with 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 interiors, uh, big interior projects, then there's a real complexity to it because there's a whole raft of different people sticking their oar in from project managers, quantity surveyors, structural engineers, every type of consultant you could possibly think of. And then there's the budget to meet and, and the deadline and all of those things. And those forces are... You know, you could you could say they're all working against your ambition with the brief to get the most creative thing out of it, but it it you know that's that's what it is, and you have to work within those parameters, or you ignore them, or you break the rules, or you do whatever you have to do to get to the end goal, and it, it's 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 a tricky it's a tricky business. There's no doubt about it, um, and. Um, you know, for me, I was incredibly lucky. When I started out of college, um, the very first client that I had was pretty much a friend um, or had become a friend and, and had already started to have a, an amount of a degree of success. But, and and it was, it was in the early days of how interior design as it exists now was developing. And, um, they kind of let me get on with it. They didn't interfere. I, I knew what the brief was and I knew what the site was, etc. And I was able, to, and it was quite radical at the time, the end product. But and then I got another job for another friend and another friend, and uh, in different disciplines, different creative dif disciplines. So I was building a kind of a platform and and kind of developing my own language, if you like, design language, and and use of certain materials, and then. 
you get a client that isn't a friend and but they've seen what you do. And I think, you know, if you it's the course that you steer and I, I, I encourage young people now out of college to kind of um you know, do as many things as you can under your own steam, if at all possible, that you're driving the project or you're working with friends or, or it's it's a modest piece of work that you know that you've got ambition you want to whatever open a shop sell some clothes sell some records do do whatever it is but um and that you get a foothold in a sense differently i know it's really difficult it's incredibly difficult getting a job's difficult having a client's difficult and um i just keep wondering if there's another way around it if if especially post pandemic or still pandemic um and all of the issues that the world has at the moment and you know the the, the urban environment there's a huge thing at the moment uh, too many new buildings are being built i'm i'm starting to preach now a bit but you've given me this platform and, and the use of materials and the the the, the, the kind of um using up the, the resources of the planet. So we've got endless empty buildings, endless, endless empty buildings. And I think that we have to stop building new bloody buildings and work with the existing ones. And I've always said that it's possible to produce a great interior out of e- the, the interior of any building. I don't care what it is, whether it's a public toilet or a bloody town hall or a government. I don't, it doesn't really matter. You can still produce great work. And, um, uh, and I think that uh, under that template, that can be applied to any uh, creative discipline. You know, we've got to stop using all the resources and, and be creative with what we have or finding new ways of using what we have. And um, I, I, and that's down to young people now. It, it, and, and that's why the, the punk movement was so great. It was kind of knocking walls down and saying, fuck it, we're going to do it our way and we don't care and the rules don't exist. And I think a bit of um, anarchy or whatever you want to call it is, is needed because there's so much bureaucracy and box ticking and can't do this, can't do that, and project managers saying this is the way you have to do it and building regulations and etc etc um so i encourage young people to do it yourself you know di the diy thing it's like the punk thing was you know you learn one chord and you you, you've got a band you you, away you go um and of course i'm exaggerating to a degree but there's got to be another way there has to be another way and i think some of that is being independent Building your own ways of doing things. And, and, and so the other thing is because of the digital world and the internet and all of that, it, a whole set of new rules exist and the parameters are different. You know, I come from an analog world and most of my early work, well, a lot of this was all within the analog world and the thought process was totally different and it it was possibly slower, you know, things took more time. And I think it's important that, you know, thinking time has been cut down now because everything's immediate. Everything is at the click of your fingers. It's there, bang, there it is. Go to Mr. Google. Um, but yeah, I guess going forward and taking a bit of a left turn, 
this this interview that we're doing now, I come from off the back of um, I was listening to a different podcast you did. I think it was it was called something like the Art of the Record Sleeve or something along those lines. And you mentioned in it, um, sort of at the start, how when you got to university and things, uh, you saw um, the students who had sort of the really big hair and sort of they were wearing, you know, mental outfits. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about it as well. But um, and you mentioned you went to the shop to get some clothes, if I remember rightly. But so off the back of that, is fashion been something that you've always had an interest in? Well, you know, I, I guess. Um the word fashion, it's the word itself is kind of um, has many different interpretations, I think. And so I, I would I would view that word in its broadest sense because there's 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 anti-fashion, there's non-fashion, but it, that, that that still appeals to certain groups of people. Um, so for me, you know, the, at the start of it, it was really. It, it, it relates to pop, what I call popular culture, and um, so was it kind um, of because you uh, mentioned kind uh, of the uh, punk uh, stuff. No, no, stop it! Stop it! Sorry, stop, stop. <laughs> no, don't interrupt. Sorry, um, because of you know, the generation that I come from, you know, if you go back to what what the description of what beatniks were, you know, what, what's a beatnik? What's 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 um, what's a teddy boy? What's um, Where's Yves Saint Laurent sitting amongst all of that? Um, music, music, I suppose, is where it where it started. And you know, the first time I heard Elvis Presley on the radio, you know, I was listening to things on the radio. We didn't have a television. I didn't know what fashion was. Um, but again, going back to those magazines that I spoke about earlier, you know, some of them would be fashion magazines. So I'd I'd see fashion in that but I don't I guess I didn't know what the hell fashion was or even what the word meant um but you know you, you could say it was to do with glamour and and ambition and aspiration you know and another world and um girls and and sex and and color and glamour and 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 then then you'd, you'd see what Elvis Presley was wearing or what 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 Chuck Berry was wearing, or whatever the what, whoever, whatever, rock and roll, um, and then and then the Beatles would appear on the scene, and they were wearing funny suits that didn't have collars, and then the Rolling Stones appeared, and they were what looked like shit, you know, they were scruffy, and that was appearing, and that, and the scruffy one was the one that interested me, but it wasn't fashion, it was, but then it was fashion because Carnaby Street came appeared, and and the mod thing happened, and and it was this whole mishmash and. And and the Kinks wearing frilly shirts, whatever. And of course, I'm talking about the '60s now, and that goes on to going through whatever movements it went through. And you steer you steer your own course through that, and it's a rocky road. It's like being on the rapids, doing the rapids. You know, shit. I'll grab a hold of that. But I like that. Oh no, and I like that over there. And it's confusing, but it's great, and it's a great journey to go on. Um, and through all of that, you you kind of build up your own thing, whatever that might be. Um, and um, when I was at the Royal Co- student at Royal College, I m- my girlfriend was in the fashion school, and and I h- hung out with the fashion crowd, and and my first projects were to do with uh, retail fashion shops. So you're you're involved with that world, and. Um, 
and fashion comes and goes, doesn't it? It it it, it blows with the wind. It, it's it and it's seasonal, like like the seasons. But it it's a fickle thing. But it's a massive industry, and. You know, I, I was involved with Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood for a time, and they were breaking the rules. They they were was it fashion? Was it anti-fashion? What the hell was it? Who knows? Who cares? It was about attitude, and it was about politics, and it was about sex. It was about so many complex things, as fashion is. Um, so yes, I have always been interested in fashion either by default or or full-on head first um, and either, you know, subliminally or or with full knowledge of what it was and what, what I was doing. And it's just another, it's another element of the creative world, I guess. But, but it, it's, it's bigger than that. It, it's, it's an industry and, um, and it affects... The world, because we know now that globally it's terrible. It's people working in poverty for next to nothing, cranking out stuff that is being sold for hundreds and thousands of times, times the price that it costs to make the bloody stuff. It's using up the world's resources. It's causing pollution, this, that, and the other. Um, but it's give, it gives young people a great way into the, create, the creative world. So it's a complex thing. And um, it's an ever-changing scene, so you know there's no there's no answer, there's no yes, there's no no, there's there's what is the I don't know. Next. <laughs> um, so yeah, you touched on it, and I, I I sort of this comes from so I was on, I was on your Instagram and I saw a pair of off-white shoes which caught really caught me off guard. Um, so I typed this question out. Um, caught me off guard. So I typed this question out and then I, I realised after the fact you'd actually worked for Virgil Abloh. I didn't even realise it was a thing when I typed the question out. I'll, I'll quickly try and give you that story. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it all goes back, as many, many things do in my life since 1982, in a place called the Hacienda in Manchester. Um, and... I painted some stripes on some columns in the Hacienda, or oh, I had them painted on, because these giant cast-iron columns supporting the roof of the building that became the Hacienda ended up in the middle of the dance floor of the Hacienda. And I said, I realised they were hazardous, that people dancing are going to bump into them or crash into them or possibly damage themselves. So I needed to think of a way of marking them as being hazardous and i'd you know i was interested in kind of what became the industrial aesthetic not my description but that whole idea of taking something out of context and putting it somewhere else which as i say all the time goes back to my obsession and interest in the artist marcel duchamp who invented oh, oh, the idea of the found object and um and, and which has kind of become a cliche. So the language of factories and industrial places of work, I used that language and painted stripes of different colours at different heights. I made a composition, like, like a painting, a three-dimensional painting, the applica application of these stripes. Fast forward decades, um, uh, some uh, people were sending me 
images of um, garments that had stripes on them, on, on, on the arms or across the shoulders, wherever. I thought, fuck, what did, what, what? It, it, it seemed instantly to be a ripoff from the language I developed in the Hacienda. And I was a little bit pissed off at the time or, you know, thinking, well, you know, that's mine. That, that, what? And I didn't, I didn't know who, what, where or what, anything about it and kind of dismissed it. But they kept coming. And um, eventually the penny, I realised that um, it was a fashion label. And um, fast forward again, I eventually got an email to my info at email address <clears throat> from um, an online fashion company called Matches Fashion, who I'd never heard of saying that they were about to launch the fact that they were um, launching a new label on their online fashion label called Off-White. I'd never heard of Off-White. And that Off-White had something to do with somebody called Virgil Abloh. I'd never heard of Virgil Abloh. And I get, I do get lots and lots of emails from all sorts of people all over the place saying we would like to do this, we want to do that, and some are great and some are not and some I know about and some I don't know about and some go further and some don't go anywhere. And I, I happened to print out that particular email and I took it into the house and showed it to my wife, who's kind of my business partner, and my then, I don't know, 18-year-old son, whatever age he was. And my wife said, it matches fashion, whatever it is you've got to do it because they're the biggest online fashion label. And my son said, it's Virgil Abloh, you've got to do it. Uh, oh shit! I've got to do it. What is it? Um, and it took a while, but eventually, a phone call was arranged from this man called Virgil Abloh, who I discovered was from Chicago. I'd done a bit of research, and eventually, there he was on the line. And um, he talked, and he seemed very pleasant, and. Um, and he started talking about columns. God, what on earth is he talking I, I couldn't <coughs> stupidly think. What I didn't know what he was talking about. And suddenly the penny dropped. He's talking about the columns in the Hacienda. Of course, that's where the stripes came from. And, um, and then he suggested that perhaps I could design something that could um, be a part of the launch of his online, his um, label off-white for the Matches Fashion launch where they put on an event. And out of that conversation came the idea that I would design a set that could be a touring set for when he, and of course he's a DJ, globally famous DJ, as well as many other things. So I, I ended up designing a set, which was like a kind of a DJ booth uh, with all sorts of accompanying elements that could be used uh, for fashion shows or touring exhibitions, whatever it might be. And it became quite a big project and um it ended up being manufactured in milan which is where off-white the label is based and um the event eventually took place at a nightclub in london in the east end called the laundry and uh the dj booth was delivered from uh, italy and some of the columns that I designed as part of this thing, and Virgil himself turned up, and he was a very lovely guy, and we got on really well, and it was it was great. And from that have come many other 
collaborations that I've done with Virgil, which have led on to all sorts of other things with other people, doors opened, and blah, blah, blah. From me being pissed off and thinking, how dare you, um, to it becoming kind of a gift and um, a new friendship and a creative collaboration and the introduction to all sorts of other projects and other people and other possibilities. So it all goes to show you never can tell. Mm, definitely. What is the, um, just me fangirling a bit, because I'm a huge fan of Virgil. I've got like a bookshelf behind me and I've got like, he's got two books. I don't know if you've seen. Um, what's he like to work with as a person, I guess? Because he seems like a creative genius, just from the outside looking in. Um, well, the fact that he's head of menswear at Louis Vuitton and... Uh, uh, and he had been formerly Kanye West creative director and he's a black man from Chicago, but he studied architecture and engineering. And I think that grounding, that foundation, that early discipline has stood him incredibly well. So, and because architecture is the kind of, you know, the godfather of the creative world, some say, and I might be one or I might not be one of them, but it is, you know, it's the biggest, it's, and it, it involves all, all, all aspects of the creative world, you know, from a junction of how one thing goes next to another to um, the, the history, the history of architecture, the history of cultures, because arch, architecture expresses all different cultures. And, um, so he can apply his thought process to anything that he wants to touch. If it's a pen or a water bottle or a car or whatever it, piece of furniture, whatever it might be. And also because he got involved with, you know, um, tagging things and um, graffiti and the music business and DJing, he's, he's kind of, he's got all bases covered and everybody wants a piece of him, everybody across the planet and he set his stall out that he can pick and choose. Um, now you can call him a genius or you could call him a magpie. You, you know, I, I, I was angry in the first instance because I thought he's ripping me off. He's copying me. Then I thought, hold on a minute. You know, you have to think, pull back a bit. And with, um, uh, black music coming out of Chicago, New York, uh, places in America, and that thing called, um, oh, God, I got a mental block. Um, what do I call it? With music. They mix it all up. A sample, when you take a piece of music and use it in a different music? Sampling, sampling. The word, sampling. Um, it's kind of the same. It, 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 if, if Virgil chooses to kind of, sample the stripes that I had the col on the columns in the Hacienda with something else, it's, it's, it's not dissimilar to what happens with music, with sampling. You, you, you could be philosophical about it in that way. Yeah, that's a lovely way of thinking and about it, I think. Not, not be pissed off, but be, be uh, flattered. However, you know, somebody might be making more money at it than you are. That's another story. Uh, well, then you touch on that, and I don't know if you want to touch on the Manchester City kit. Are you cool if we touch on the Manchester City kit at all? Well, how can I stop you? <laughs> well, um, you sort of mentioned that, and obviously a couple of seasons ago, there was a 
I think it looked really lovely, the kit, personally. There was a Manchester City away kit, which obviously oh. drew inspiration from oh, that. No, no, you are annoying me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, it, it was... No, 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 you can stop there. That pissed me off more than anything else that's pissed me off in terms of language that I developed and how it's been appropriated, and it's been appropriated globally. Um, and I, 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 I can't copyright black and yellow stripes. I can't copyright stripes. Of course I can't, and that's even ridiculous to think that. But, you know, there was something very special about the Hacienda and Factory Records, and um, it's crass. It's, it's, there was no thought process. It was poorly done. Nobody, nobody had the courtesy to pick up the goddamn phone and speak to me about it and say, we're thinking about doing this, perhaps you'd like to be involved. Perhaps you might be paid a fee for this. Perhaps this, perhaps the other. Oh, no, we'll just carry on and do it ourselves and we'll produce a piece of crap, which is what it is. I don't give a shit whether you like it or not. It's just, it's just a sad indictment of bullying, of thoughtlessness, and, um, you know, I could I could have gone legal on that one. I could have employed <coughs> lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, and I could have gone down that bloody rabbit hole and taken years and been beaten to pulp, lost money, been disillusioned, et cetera, et cetera, because Manchester City, there is a, an endless pot of money there. And... It just, it's staggering the kind of arrogance, the absolute arrogance that those people could have to go about that and not even have the courtesy to approach me. And I think you need to think about that. And whether you like it or not, that's your prerogative. But when it comes to the issue of copyright, and that is, that is all that we have, creative people, that's all you've got. And you need to think about that. You need to remember that. Um, it's your language. It's something that you've developed. And for some football club in Manchester, to, and you know, I, I could spout on about this for hours and I, you, you've got me going now. I'm sorry. Um, th- there was a film called 24 Hour Party People, if you know about that yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. About that film? yeah, I've watched it, yeah. Well, they rebuilt a set of the Hacienda. They did a fantastic job. And before they got started with that film, they, the production company approached me and asked me, did I have reference material of the, of the Hacienda because they had to rebuild it? And I said, of course I bloody do. I have all the original drawings. Of course I do. Why wouldn't I? And they said, oh, that's fantastic to hear. Maybe we could work with you. Maybe we could use some of your, you know, the information to rebuild it. I said, of course. So they went off and talked to the boss or talked to whoever, blah, 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 further conversations. I signed an NDA. Uh, I, I signed a living person's release form <coughs> because somebody might have been playing me in the bloody film, blah, blah, blah. Conversations took place. And as soon as I suggested that perhaps a fee might be required for them to use my design and my drawings, they disappeared off the face of the earth. And they went ahead and they rebuilt it from material that had been pirated on the goddamned internet and wherever they managed to find material. And they did an amazing job. I, I give that to them. But And the director, Michael Winterbottom, that film, who's a kind of has integrity with his work, I think. He does good work. He's a northern person. And 
they just took the piss as far as I was concerned. And I eventually went legal on that production company. Three years later, and they kept disappearing. They kept changing their address. We couldn't find them. They were like slippery people. And um, it was an exhausting process. I eventually found a, a firm of lawyers who, uh, big shot lawyers, who saw it as something that they would take on their books as a no win, no fee situation. And they just, they're a dog with a bone. And eventually the distributors of that film, who also had a responsibility related to copyright, settled out of court for nowhere near what the amount of money that should have changed hands. And I was so pissed off and exhausted. My whole remit for wanting to take that route was to make a big splash in the press about the issue of copyright. Because as I say, that's all we have. And even with 24-hour party people, creative team of people making a film, even they didn't have the balls to say, I would have been happy with 500 quid as a consultant on the film. I wasn't chasing big money. I, the same with those arseholes at Manchester fucking city or whatever they are, or the advertising agency, whoever they are, they just didn't have the courtesy, integrity, or whatever you want to call it. And that's that. I just want to say, just for the record, when I say that I think the kit is nice, I'm not saying that to kind of jump in bed with Man City or anything like that. I, I, I think that it is, it is pretty sickening and, you know, the ends do not justify the means in this case. And I think the Hacienda, whilst it did go global, um, its core and its heart was really still Manchester, wasn't it? And I would presume, you know, I think Puma were the people that designed that kit and I would presume that as a result, it's probably designed in some kind of faraway land somewhere and not in Manchester, which kind of takes a lot out of it, doesn't it, in a sense? And also when the person actually designed the club itself is still alive and kicking in yourself and, and you know, happy to help with the project it is kind of ridiculous. And I think I think as well what you're saying is perfectly valid as well. You know, when Virgil Abloh does it, just an example, I'm sure there's more examples of different people out there taking sort of the the visual language of the Hacienda, so to speak, and and um reappropriating it. It's um I think the analogy of sort of using it as sample is a lovely way of um, speaking about it, I think it, it does make sense in that scenario. It's, I think in a way it's sort of taking it and translating it to a different culture in a way, you know, because in America, not everyone knows the Hacienda, not everyone knows Factory Records. So Virgil doing it kind of, it has, it's sort of a love letter almost, whereas Man City doing it, it's obvious that it comes directly from the Hacienda. So you can't, you can't like pretend it isn't. It's in Manchester. Um, and obviously they've they've just blunt forced their way through it, taken it, and then just ran with it, so to speak. So now I just want to say I'm not I'm not in bed with the enemy. I am I am on your side. Well, whether you are or you aren't, um, it, it's a matter of principle, yeah. and um, and there would have been a much better result. And this isn't me blowing my own bloody mm -hmm. fly my own flag necessarily, but I just thought it was a poor piece of design. Yeah. And it would have been a much better piece of design had I been involved because it wouldn't have been, it would have been subtler and had more integrity about it, yeah. I believe. But there you go. Moving on. Next. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a photo with you on your Instagram with Kanye West. Um, I guess, how did that come about? Did that come about through Virgil, I'd assume? Well, yeah, of course it did. Um, 
Virgil had been invited to put on a massive retrospective exhibition of his work at the Chicago uh, Museum of Contemporary Art, if that's what it's called. And um, eventually he approached me because he wanted to do a collaborative piece with me for that show, I guess related to the work that I'd done with him previously, which was to do with columns. And so I decided that it should be what I called fallen columns. And I designed um, this installation, which were two massive big steel fallen intersecting columns that looked as if they'd been partly buried in the, in the, in the ground of the gallery. And it was a big piece made here in London um, and shipped out to Chicago. So off I went with my wife to the grand opening of the exhibition and all of the kind of spin-off things that happened around it in Chicago, which was pretty amazing. And at the opening gala night, there was a huge dinner and speeches and blah, blah, blah. And Virgil had made his speech and Kanye, who was there at the dinner, and I found myself next to him and being introduced by Virgil and um, fully took the opportunity to shake the man's hand and... Um, and talk about the Hacienda and he seemed to be impressed and resonate with the fact that he was talking to the man who designed the Hacienda and I was impressed that I was talking to the man who's called Kanye West, blah, blah, blah. It was a moment. It was a moment. That's what it was. And the photo opportunity. And um, that's really how that came about. Um, and it was an amazing in evening. The, the, a lot of incredible people, a lot of great artists, not just musicians, but art artists and musicians and fashion designers and God knows who else, the great and the good. Um, and there were many events that took place over a, period, a number of days around Virgil's exhibition, which is now touring all the major cities in the US. Um, so it's a fantastic thing to, to be a part of that. There's no doubt about it. And, and, and the fact that I, so there I shoved it up on my Instagram account. And of course that particular one, has had more hits or likes or whatever you call them than any other image that I've put up on my Instagram. Um, that is a travesty. That is a travesty. <laughs> so yeah, to begin sort of rounding off, uh, I wanted to touch on the book a little bit because I, I love the narrative that it tells about kind of how you mentioned it a little bit about how the, the, the Hacienda of things, <clears throat> it was pulled from sort of the construction sort of thing. So in a sense, that's kind of, to me, it is art imitating life. And then over time, you can kind of see sort of the striped motif and things like that on sort of things like uh, off-white and things like that. But if you walk around, you can just see it in the street, sort of on the floor, you'll see it scattered around, which is sort of life imitating art. So it's kind of double backed on itself. And I, I personally, I really love that narrative about it. Or could you touch on that a little bit, maybe? Very nice of you to say. Um, well, the story behind the book really is and it's back to bloody Instagram. Um, I, I, you know, look at images on Instagram and um, I noticed, I must have noticed one particular image to start with of, of, um, of a photograph in the industrial landscape somewhere, or I didn't know what. And, and, and then I noticed there was some text with it and it said, um, swipe 
It's a word that isn't in my vocabulary, but because of Instagram, it is. Um, so I, I swiped, I swoop, whatever you, the plural, and um, and saw saw one of my photographs of the interior of the hacienda, and then I, and then uh, you know, and then I saw another one, and, and another one, and and somebody was putting up pictures that he'd taken in the post-industrial landscape in the northeast of England of fragmented bits of pieces that related to the design language of the Hacienda. And then he put the photograph of the Hacienda next to it and this really nice piece of text to how he explained that he was taking these images in that kind of post-industrial landscape where he would find these scattered bits and pieces that were possibly the original source of where I took the language and applied it to the design of the Hacienda. And so there was this kind of narrative running through it and there were more and more of these very beautifully composed images. And I just thought he's, he's taking such thoughtful, interesting, beautiful images in that, in that landscape. <clears throat> running parallel to that, I had been taking my own pictures years um, that of things that kind of struck me as a sort of relationship to the language from the Hacienda, but mine were more snapshots, instant click bang. Whereas this guy's images were really thoughtful and beautifully composed. Plus the fact that shit, it's by somebody called Eugene Schlumberger. What a name, you know, my God, this is, this is, you know, there's something really interesting here. There's almost like kind of some weird, I don't know, uh, uh, kind of avant-garde writer or so, somebody, but anyway, taking these pictures. And I kept seeing them, kept seeing them. And eventually I thought, I've got to make, I've got to make contact with this guy, with Eugene Schlumberger. Who is he? He's mysterious. And um, eventually I must have DM'd him and he got in touch back and we sort of had this dialogue over time. And, um, you know, I was saying how great his pictures were and blah, blah. And eventually I said, I, th I really think we should meet, you know, if you're ever in London, let let's meet up. And eventually he said he was going to come to London and um, we arranged to meet, we met. And um, I took him to a place called 180 The Strand, which is where I've been able to put on big installations in this kind of um, new sort of arts complex kind of environment. And I thought, I know what we've got to do, Eugene. We need to make a book of your pictures and my pictures. And that was my, that was, that was, I thought that's, that's the only way we can make a project out of this. And there'll be this kind of dialogue between his work and my log and the kind of big contrast between his view on the world and my view on the world relating back to the language of the Hacienda. Um, and 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 then I, I said I, I know exactly I, I know what it should be called it should be called Hacienda Landscapes because there he is out in that post-industrial landscape, and and my pictures are in in a kind of global landscape. That seemed appropriate. And 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 the, the when I did the design of the Hacienda, I did see it like a landscape. It's a kind of an architectural landscape that you walk through, uh, like a three-dimensional painting or a big piece of sculpture. But it was definitely a landscape. And that seemed the right way to frame the project. But I didn't know, and I thought, oh, God, you know, you can deal with publishers, books, you need a publisher. And I, I'd had previous earlier experience with publishers and you, you, can't, you can't make any money out of it. Not that, I, not that I was, it was driven by the idea of making money. I just wanted to find a way of 
getting exposure with this idea of the book. And um, I, I had a friend, a guy called Anthony Burrell, who you may or may know of, who is a graphic designer, and very successful. He does um, he does a lot of posters using um, uh, God um, mental block printing um, early. What's it called? Letterpress. Letterpress. Thank you. And and Anthony lives not very far away from where I have a place on the south coast. I've got a studio here, and Anthony has a studio about half an hour away. And he uses this old printers in Rye, the town called Rye, who have got letterpress printing. And he prints posters where uh, and it, of slogans of statements saying "Be nicer to people," or uh, and and he's been very successful with them. And I knew that he'd he'd done some books, and I think he'd done a couple of books using crowdfunding. I went to talk to him, and he said, oh, you should do it through crowdfunding. You should do it on Kickstarter, and I'll introduce you to this guy who uh, runs Kickstarter projects. He's a really great graphic designer. He happens to live in um, Barcelona, weirdly. He's an English guy. And so I made contact with Darren, uh, and who was had actually weirdly previously – uh, worked on the design of a reissue of a book called Factor Records, the complete graphic album. Got it behind me. Um, and, and quite recently, they'd done a reprint of that and, and done it through Kickstarter and been very successful. And he was very excited. And that's how that's so that was the team myself, Eugene, and Darren Wall via Anthony Burrell. And um, we launched the Kickstarter campaign very nervously from my point of view. I had no experience with anything, such a thing. And I worked on a massive emailing list of over 900 people, nearly 1,000 people that I emailed, bringing their, you know, that's my mailing list, bringing to their attention that we're doing this book. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. We set a, a, a limit of 45K that we needed to raise, and we ended up raising just over 50,000 pounds through Kickstarter, through this very anxiety-driven process where it went off like a rocket, then it plateaued out, and then it did well at the end. And um, it was just amazing. And what I find incredible, uh, the most amazing thing about the whole process project is that I, I could, through, you get the names of everybody who's pledged, and I could work out all the different countries that they'd pledged from by seeing what their postal requirements were, weirdly. And people from 19 countries around the world pledged the book. And I just think that's that's the phenomenon of the Hacienda. The Hacienda, I say, never dies. And it has become a global phenomenon. And, and it's, it's got that reach across 19 countries, which I think is amazing. And, and that is the phenomenon that was the Hacienda. So, you know, it's been a great process and... I hope it will be a thing of great beauty when eventually we manage to get it produced by the end of November, early December. I didn't manage to get it through the... I don't know why I didn't buy it when it was on the Kickstarter, but, yeah, as soon as it comes out... I don't know why you didn't. (laughs) As soon as it comes out, I promise you I'll get a coffee. So, yeah, to begin kind of wrapping up, I do this with every person. It is a bit cliche. I know I've been here for ages. I want to speed through now because I can't tell if you're just pissed off at me at this point. But um, <laughs> I'm speed skating. I enjoy reminding people, um, lot, but no, of course I'm not pissed off with you. I'm, um, you know, I I respect and admire what you're doing in terms of the podcast. Mm-hmm. That that it, it it it's out there for young people and for students to kind of 
know what people have been up to and how to maybe advise about mm-hmm. what going about things. Um, yeah, no, peace. No, but yeah. Um, anyway, I, I ask every single person um, a couple of questions at the end, and the first one is: if you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, first of all, when you first got into doing what you do now, um, what would that be? Well, it's what I did, and it's stick at it. You stick at it, and it's a rocky road, and you take the ups and the downs. And and I, I think what's in one important, yeah, failure. <clears throat> there will be failure along the way, but you learn from failure, and it gives you strength. And you need to understand and experience failure. I think to to know how important it is to kind of cope with failure and then move on and and learn from it um, because it's a part and also you know i think it was malcolm mclaren who talked about the beauty of failure uh, because who's right and who's wrong you know who's to say even if something didn't work well it might not have been your fault it might be somebody else's fault um and and i think failure can be a beautiful thing but you stick at it is the biggest thing and don't let failure stop you and then sort of the second one is, if it is just the same answer, I can just use the same one. But uh, the second one is, if you give a piece of advice to somebody who is graduating now as opposed to when you did, um, what would that be if you had one? Be independent, don't give up and keep going would be my advice. And that's probably the hardest thing of the lot because, you know, everybody's wanting to get your portfolio together and and look online and apply for jobs and that can be a really demoralizing thing you might get lucky and you got to it's climbing the bloody ladder getting on the first rung the second rung etc etc it's incredibly difficult and i sympathize i mean and this might be off the record it depends on you whether you want to include it or not um brian but education is in a terrible state at the moment i believe it it, it it's just become another business and I'm I'm a professor at Kingston Art School, Kingston University, and I've been external examiner up and down the country. And I, it has become just another business and a numbers game. And um, so it's it's a difficult place to be in a difficult time to be in education, I think. Um, so, and the pandemic has made everything more difficult. But I do go back to saying, you know, it. The, the future, and it's a, here's a cliche: the future is in the hands of young people, and the arsehole politicians, and the arsehole governments, and the the confusion that, that they've spread out. You you've got to kind of steer a course through that, and so to be independent, if at all possible, and step aside from all of that crap, and find another way of doing things, and you know be bullshit be be difficult be awkward be but be have integrity and um be kind to people and think about the environment think about the world think about other people but be creative and bollocks you know punk was a great thing um make your own world be creative don't don't give up I think just kind of touch on that as well. You mentioned sort of the, the kind of the education industry is is in tatters. It's, it's just a load of bollocks. And I can tell you that for first time, it is still, as a student, it is bollocks. And we all think it's bollocks. It's stuff like, it's it's not, it's like what you're saying as well, but it's stuff like we're learning how to bind a book. 
and to be honest, I don't think I'm ever going to learn how to bind a book. I'm going. I'm never going to use that in my life. I can tell you. I'm not learning how to bind a book at all. I think that's a great, great thing because I think craft, craft is really, really, really important. And doing things with your hands, other than clicking on a goddamn keyboard, is really important. And I think it's important to learn how to bind a book because that that, that actually, I, I totally disagree with you here. It 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 involves so many things. If you know how to bind a book, you probably know how to do a thousand other things that you didn't even think you knew about as having learnt about binding a book. I really believe that hugely. Um, and I, you know, if, if so, binding a book, a book is a fabulous thing. Books, you know, because of the online situation, books, you can't, there's nothing better than a book. There's nothing better than a vinyl record. There's nothing better than things that you can hold in a newspaper. You turn the pages. It's, do not lose sight of that. Please don't lose sight no, of that. No, I, I because- completely get what you're saying. And I love books myself. As I said, I've got a big collection behind myself, but it's not, it's not that. It's the idea, as I mentioned earlier, the world is on fire. Do you know what I mean? Me learning how to bind a book isn't going to help that. You need to produce people which are going to, come up with these amazing ideas to tell people that the world is on fire so they do something about it i think i completely get where you're coming from i'm not i'm not knocking the fact that having those skills is there maybe maybe there should be a global binder book day where everybody (laughs) knows what they're doing the the whole planet binds a book in a day i suppose yeah because then you yeah you'd offset sort of carbon emission you know blah 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 blah, all of that yeah yeah you have time to You'd have time to sit down and think, I'm doing something with my hands. I'm making a, I'm binding a book. The book contains information. The book is a kind of a thing of beauty. No, yeah. I've not even thought about it from that perspective. It's zen. It's zen. It's zen. I'm going now. That's one last thing, I promise. Um, where can people find you online? Do you want to plug your lovely, well, lovely if Instagram? Don't know that, if they don't know that, then they should give up, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Fucking Instagram, website, podcast, Google. Where else? Books, magazines, phone number. Come and find me. I'm here. Well, um, yeah, <laughs> that's it. I really love this. Uh, the, what, the what? I, I had a book. Well, I my practice had a book published over twenty years ago. It was called Plans and Elevations, Ben Kelly Design. It's no longer in print, and it's a square book with an orange cover, graphically put together by His Majesty Peter Saville. Um, and that that talks about my early work and the work of my design practice. And you probably can still find a few grubby copies on, um, what's it called? eBay and Amazon. Those places, yeah. It's called Plans and Elevations, Ben Kelly Design. I might have a Google for that. Yeah, orange. Yeah. Also, I'll give, I'll give you another. I'll give you something else to find, which will amuse and entertain you and anybody else who engages with it. Um, if you Google all along the dotted line, the photo kid. It's a music track with a video. It's a music track that I made sometime in the, probably the late 70s, I still don't know what year it was, with a couple of guys who used to be in a band called 10CC, who came from the area, Manchester area and built uh, Strawberry Studios, which is where Joy Division and early 
New Order recorded stuff. And Kevin Godley and Lol Cream were two members of the band 10CC who had a major hit with a song called I'm Not In Love. And they dragged me to, rec- they were friends, and they dragged me to a recording studio one time because I said, oh, songwriting's easy, I could do that. And um, they said, that we want to make an album with a non-musician. And they said, you can do it if you take and write bloody songs. And I, I had written this thing called All Along the Dotted Line. <clears throat> and it must have been, maybe it was just post-punk, I don't know, because the Sex Pistols had been around. And I had, I had designed the Sex Pistols re- rehearsal rooms. So that's me singing with my best John Lydon interpretation uh, of this track called All Along the Dotted Line. And then many years later with another firm, um, they, they, they helped me make a video for that track, which I was very proud of the video. And that's, I will leave you with that gift. Yeah, I shall have a Google as soon as we're finished. And you yeah. probably have a good laugh as well. Is, it, is the video like green? if I was to describe it, because I think I've seen a video on your website. Is it on your website? Oh, it might well be, but I don't remember yeah. it being green. Oh, I don't know. It's just, I can just remember it vaguely being very green. Well, there are there are references to the Hacienda and other bits. Uh, so it might be then, I don't know. I think, I think um, it might be on the website, actually. You, you might be right, yeah. I might have watched it, yeah. Um, well, well, but yeah, yeah, that's it then. Anyway. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, I will click stop hello it's just me again um, I hope you enjoyed that the problem with this is I'm recording this prior to editing the episode so I don't know how much I'll keep in and I'll keep out but yeah hopefully I keep as much in as I can um, hopefully you gain some insights from that into kind of the process that somebody you know has worked with the likes of Virgil Abloh and people like that actually take when they go into projects and yeah, um, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, you know where to find me online by now. Parity material everywhere. If you want to find Ben, I know he didn't, he didn't actually say his Instagram handle, but if you search kind of Ben Cali, um, he comes up on Google and you can probably find his Instagram through there, through his website. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I shall see you next time. <laughs>